I have noticed over the past 10 years how many critics in particular came from religious backgrounds. And I always wonder how, if there's a correlation there, if yeah. there's something in, in growing up in a religious background that makes you gravitate towards close reading and thinking about stories and texts and things like that. Welcome back to The Image Podcast. I'm Sophia Ross. I've never met today's guest, Alyssa Wilkinson, but I feel like I have. And if you follow Alyssa on Twitter, you might feel like this too. She tweets several times a day, mostly about the film she reviews and comments on for Vox.com, but also about what's happening in popular culture and in Christian culture. Her film reviews are multifaceted, sharp, and insightful, and I've learned to trust her judgment. In fact, I just went to see the new Greta Gerwig film, Lady Bird, at her recommendation, and absolutely loved it. This past summer, Alyssa served on the Glenn Workshop faculty, where she taught the art of criticism, and sat down with Gregory Wolf to talk about her work as a film critic and her relationship to movies. Here they are now. Alyssa Wilkinson, welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so we're here at the Glenn Workshop, as a number of these podcast interviews are, while we're harvesting all the amazing talent here in Santa Fe. And you're here in a new capacity this year. Um, you've taught uh, a food seminar for us, which food and drink, I guess, both spiritual well. eating, as spiritual. Lickford called it. <laughs> yes, yes, and that was of course very popular. But you know, as the Image staff thought about how to put out a, a nice sort of smorgasbord for this year's Glen, we realized that there are a lot of uh, up-and-coming writers and thinkers who are really trying to figure out how to pursue a vocation in criticism. And there is so much, there's so many channels, so to speak, these days that curation is a more and more important thing. We need guides to help us cope with all the information. So we, we asked you to do the art of criticism and you're off to a good start, it sounds like. Yeah, well, we're three days in. We have a full class of 15. About half of them are new to the Glen and about half of them have been here before doing different kinds of things like poetry and songwriting. And a number of them have done criticism in various capacities and then a number of them haven't. So it's a real mixed group of people. And we're spending the first half of class talking about works of criticism and various craft issues in the second half of class, workshopping reviews. And it's been really very good. You know, workshops kind of live or die on the interaction between the people in the room, but everyone is very supportive. But also, and I realized this makes sense, uh, in a workshop on criticism, they sort of self-select as people who are willing to give criticism to one another, which mm -hmm. actually makes for a really good workshop environment. Yeah. Um, so we've workshopped book reviews and film reviews and uh, different uh, music reviews and seen people really grow, I think, in their understanding of what criticism is and why we do it. Yeah. Well, obviously, you're very well known and respected as a film critic. Plus, you've done other types of criticism in other gigs, television, and other art forms for sure. Um, what was your path to this? I mean, I, you've, you've got more degrees than I've got fingers, so <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to reconstruct, but I don't think I really know where you kind of really felt that calling or 
how that path worked for you. I mean, among other things, you you took the Seattle Pacific University MFA degree in creative, creative writing, not critical writing. So maybe you can toss that in at the end and tell us kind of how that factored in. Yeah, it's a funny story, mostly because it doesn't make any sense on paper, even though it makes sense in my head. So I actually majored in computer science in college and information technology. I worked in on Wall Street as a, a business analyst, which is a technical position. And then I felt like there was something more that I was interested in, culture, thinking about the things that had always been interesting to me as a kid. And in the meantime, I started dating my husband who had gone to film school and was working in the film industry. So we started to go see a lot of art house movies together, foreign movies, old movies, all the kinds of things that you can see when you live in New York City pretty easily. Um, Like, for instance, right around the corner from me, right after we started dating, they were doing a Boris Karloff retrospective at film forums. We got to go see Frankenstein. So I got kind of interested in how films worked. I guess I had never really thought about it before. And then I also was experiencing my first year out of college, which is like a panic moment for everybody where it's the first time in your life that you're not going back to school in the fall. And so I signed up for some continuing ed courses at NYU, and one of them was in film criticism. It was just a month. But I got kind of fascinated by the form and what is it and how do people do it and what are they trying to do. And I started kind of toying around with it, and I pitched some pieces to magazines, and Paste was the place that started publishing me. And I wrote for them for a long time. And then when you're a freelancer, you kind of just write for whoever will have you. And at this point, I've written for several dozen different publications. And in the meantime, my life path kind of took me through arts nonprofits and magazines and a master's degree at NYU. Um, I finally wound up teaching at the King's College um, right after I finished that degree at NYU. And when I started there, they said, well, you can work here full time. And, you know, that that was the position, but you'll need to get a terminal degree. which means a PhD or an MFA. And I thought to myself, well, an MFA is shorter. (laughs) Yes. And probably would be very useful. And so I landed at the SPU one, which I knew about because I've been coming to the Glen. And it turned out to be much more than I expected. I, I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, I'm a published writer. I teach English to freshmen in college. I know things about writing. This is just like the certification But what I didn't realize is a lot of craft things that I uh, just had never occurred to me because I was a technical writer for the most part. Or I, at the time, was thinking of criticism as really just analyzing things, being more like technical writing than anything else. And studying creative nonfiction, which is a lot of memoir and personal essay, I started to think about things like constructing narrators, right? And how do you sound on the page and what goes into that? Or working with memory, is there a difference between truth and honesty? (laughs) Um, And also all those tools that creative writers use to make their work come alive, description and metaphor and all of these things. So that was a lot of what I learned in the MFA. And on top of it, as you well know, we read lots and lots and lots of books, and then we write annotations on them, looking at very specific craft issues and it turned out that that was a really good way to learn to be a better critic because it meant I had to learn to close read in a, in a better fashion than I had before. Um, so that meant when I would review a book, for instance, I would just kind of come at it from one angle instead of trying to do everything in one review. 
and that spilled over into film reviewing. And now that I mainly do film reviewing, I still think annotations are the most useful thing that I did in graduate school. That's right. And we, we required a whole 62. boatload of them <laughs> in the program, which was obviously a, a subject for much uh, muttering, but also kind of this belated respect, you know, oh, yes. after the pain of it was over. Yes. So what are the characteristics of a good critic? I mean, what, what virtues does a critic need? What, what's the essence of the art, art form? And it is an art because it's, it, it has technical elements, but it's all about interpretation and knowing a history, knowing a tradition, knowing the formal elements of the art form mm-hmm. you're talking about. How do you describe it? So with my class this week, we started out talking about it as ekphrastic writing. We actually looked at a bit of ekphrastic poetry. It wasn't Keats. Okay, was so let's, for our listeners, let's define that. Right. Do you want to go for it? Yeah, it's, it's, it, in its loosest form is uh, art about art. So, like a poem about a painting. Yes, or a Grecian urn, for instance, right? Ode to a Grecian urn is a famous version of this. But the ancients thought of ekphrastic writing as just a very detailed description of something, um, which you can understand the utility of that in the ancient world when we didn't have photographs. Today, the, the definition has expanded really to include just sort of close writing about works of art in response to experiences of works of art usually. So I think this is a helpful way of thinking about criticism because with ekphrastic writing, you are making a new work of art in response to a work of art. And I think that's what critics are doing when they're at their best. They're creating a work of art that is somewhat related to the personal essay, and they're doing it in response to their experience with a work of art. So the place they start is with, what reaction did I have to this work of art? And then they have to do all the work that normal people don't have to do at that, you know, most of us walk out of a movie and say, I liked it, I didn't like it. But the critic then has to say, why didn't I like it? And then work through all of those pieces and construct an argument around it about what the thing is or isn't. And I think so great critics have a huge capacity to be open to new experiences, to approach them with as clean a slate as possible, and also a very strong ability to quickly make judgments that are based on some kind of evidence. Uh, So like if I am in a movie and I feel like it's too long, I can feel like it's too long, but that's not a thing. Nothing is really too long. I then have to be able to think while I'm sitting there, why do I feel like this is too long? Because criticism is sort of equal parts personal essay and journalism, and we're all, you know, sort of working through reporting on the experience. So those pieces go together. And thus, there's like a lot of empathy and sort of a lot of generosity that has to go into good criticism. But there's also discernment and sort of a feeling of being able to put yourself inside the mind of someone else as best as you can, while also recognizing your own limitations. Now, when you're in a film, are you, do you ever find it difficult to be in the immersive experience of what the film is trying to do to move or shape you and be conscious, self-consciously thinking about it at the same time? Or is that just a skill one learns? Or do you watch everything twice? You do it once for, for immersion and once for thinking. I almost never get to watch things twice. So the typical way that it works is you go to a theater for a screening that the studio has set up. You see it once and then you go write about it, which is really, really difficult. (laughs) 
So I saw Dunkirk last week and I saw it at 10 a.m. and it was over at noon and it, the embargo was lifting at four, which meant I really had to have it to my editor by two. So I had to review a movie of that stature, which is a remarkable work of art in two hours. So that was hard. Um, and that's not totally atypical. But um, I think that you learn the skill of being able to work with two sides of your brain at once um, in a film when you're a critic, the more you do it. Uh, I have, I don't really cry at movies, but I never really have. It's just not my thing. But I have friends who will be blubbering during a movie and then they'll go home and write like a really scintillating review. And it's not always a positive review. And so they are able to do that. And I think that's a skill that is only really able to be learned over time. Um, and then to be able to write something meaningful. But you know, you, you learn to always have a thesis about the movie by the time the movie is over, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. And it's not super easy, but, um, but it is really rewarding. And it means that that never gets turned off. Even if I'm watching a film I don't have to review, I'm using that part of my brain because it's just natural. And I think it actually makes the experience with the work of art more rich um, mm. at the end of the day. Instead of spoiling it, I think people get the idea that being a critic spoils the film, but actually yeah. critics love film or books or whatever it is they're yeah. writing. Why do I feel like you thrive on that two-hour deadline? <laughs> I do actually write better under deadline, but that's another acquired skill. But like at festivals, it's the same thing. For 10 straight days, no sleep. I was at Cannes earlier this summer for the first time, and that's a wonderful festival, but they would screen the film at 8.30 in the morning, which is a real interesting time to see a movie. And then the film would be premiering that night, and so I would have to get the review written and through edits with my editor back in the States before we ran with it. Wow, that's amazing. Let me double back for a minute. And just in terms of your own story, I think, I mean, I wanna say this respectfully, but in some ways, from what I know, one might say you had something of a sheltered upbringing, or there was a certain there were certain things that you were allowed to do and see, and others. Could you explain a little bit, if you feel like it? We can always cut this if you want. <laughs> um, what that meant to you in terms of just how you ended up? Maybe that's why, in a way, you have this openness because you haven't you weren't like a hardened movie watcher as a kid or anything? Yeah, so my family was just very conservative. And also I come from like a fairly working class background, which um, I have members of my family who are in the arts, but that's not a big part of any of my family's lives on on either of my parents' side. And they're all very smart and interesting people, but they just don't really read books or watch movies very much. And so in addition to that, I was homeschooled and we were kind of in a group of people who didn't believe culture was anything that people should really engage with, that Christians should engage with. So, yeah, so I only probably saw about a half dozen movies growing up. Um, I did see several Jimmy Stewart movies. I saw White Christmas, you know, that kind of thing. But for the most part, I hadn't seen many. And I think that that is has been difficult in some ways because it's meant I've had a lot to catch up on that a lot of people just have seen. You know, I I only saw Citizen Kane a couple years ago for the first time. And once you see it, you think, how, I, how have I ever written a review before seeing this film? 
But also, it means that I don't have a nostalgic attachment to basically anything, yeah. um, including Star Wars. So <laughs> I come at everything almost on a blank slate level at this point. And I started really seriously watching film in about 2005, 2006, which was a really excellent time to begin watching uh, independent film in particular. Mm. There was a real boom in American filmmaking. And, you know, the next year, um, movies like There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men were coming out that were real monuments, I think, in American filmmaking. And so I was able to cut my teeth on really great, great films. You know, there's been years that are better and worse for film in the U.S. So I think that it is a drawback, but it's also a benefit to me. And I just have to be upfront about that sometimes. And also I have to when I'm writing about film, sometimes I have to fake a little bit of knowledge by, or, you know, research really, go back and learn more. It also was challenging because, of course, you know, if you kind of grow up in that environment, uh, movies that have objectionable content can be difficult. And I worked at Christianity Today for years, and um, they had a very open way of reviewing films, but we still had to provide that information to our readers and also think about, is a movie bad if it has swear words in it or sex or whatever? I think you navigated those waters about as, as adeptly as possible and respectfully. But, you know, pushed the reader to think and to reflect on, you know, how to apply their moral values, their concerns about these things more intelligently and less kind of ham-fistedly mm -hmm. in, in that sort of realm. Yeah, and to not write something off because it, of its surface, but then also not to blindly accept something just because it's devoid of any objectionable content. I mean, some people who come from conservative backgrounds have like a real super allergic reaction, you know, and they just, it, it becomes so traumatic to them that they they fall off the other side of the horse and they just, you know, get very bitter and they're angry. You feel like someone who's been able to kind of maintain a continuity of commitment to your, you know, fundamental shape as a, as a Christian mm -hmm. believer from childhood and yet establish a kind of aesthetic and moral uh, standpoint that that you you know articulate pretty well how how does that work for you i mean you never got tempted to sort of you're a loyal cuss i think and you know you you have great commitments and and you feel a strong i, I just sense that about you mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i was also lucky in that i was never abused or sort of had some of those really strong experiences that some people have and you know, my family's good, my church is good that I grew up in. And so those are things that I can, I really value. And I'm very aware when I talk to some people that I had, I had a different experience than other people who grew up a lot like me. Um, and it didn't materially harm me in my future life. Yeah. I mean, one thinks of, you can hear Catholics who went to this same school and one, the nuns wrapped his knuckles too many times and destroyed his life. And the other, she loved them, and they were the nurturing people who changed their, you know, their lives. So it is interesting how that happens. It is really interesting, and it's it's a challenge in writing about religious experience because everyone's ex everyone thinks that their childhood experience is the right, like that is the childhood experience that explains everything about religion, and and it can't. There's there, that's not possible. We all had very individual experiences, but I also. I feel like 
It's interesting to say this, but I think that having begun to engage with art on a pretty serious level and been part of arts and faith communities pretty much as soon as I sort of moved past my college years and into the big wide world, that was really formative for me because so much of what we talk about in arts and faith discussions is about ambiguity and not having final answers and not shutting down doors to different experiences. And and also, there's such a wide variety of people in these communities. I mean, certainly at the Glen, right? It's almost impossible to say one thing about people at the Glen. Indeed. And um, that I remember my first Glen being a little startled by that variety, but also it was formative for me because I thought, well, I am not like everyone in this group, but they're not like me either. And we're all kind of headed in the same direction. And I think knowing, for instance, that a lot of the people who were involved in these super conservative worlds that I came out of, they were just grasping for truth a lot of the time too, helped me kind of understand in a different way what my history was, as did writing about it, honestly, in the MFA. It, it helped me see some things that I kind of resented. Um, I got to see how they looked from a different different perspective. So, you know, it's still there. It's still challenging. It's still in my head sometimes. But I also teach college students, and a lot of them come from backgrounds very similar to mine. So the ability to identify with them and also help them maybe mature in their faith and in their artistic practices, right? Knowing what that's like is important. Yeah, and I think there's a way, there's a way of trying to expand a, a young person's mind while respecting their fundamental faith commitment and saying, you know, in fact, it might be that this deeper way of looking at culture or, or cultural artifacts, aesthetic objects, will help your faith be uh, more solid, more mm-hmm. able to deal with the complexities and the, the tragedies and difficulties of life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and I mean, obviously there are professors who, who like subverting students. That's kind of a, an, old, an old trope in the, in the academic world. But I think there's a noble task of, mm-hmm. of having this, you know, place where you're saying, well, I came through this same journey that I hope you will go on and here's what I learned along the way. Yeah. And I'm, I still believe, you know, or most of the time I still believe as I think is probably the truer state statement for most people. And also I still think there's value to not cutting off our old experiences, but thinking about how they shaped us into the people we are today. And art does give people that ability in a way that is profoundly different from any I think the ways most people get to experience it. And I've, I have known, I have noticed over the past 10 years, how many critics in particular came from religious backgrounds. And I always wonder how, if there's a correlation there, if yeah. there's something in, in growing up in a religious background that makes you gravitate towards close reading and thinking about stories and texts and things like that. Well, I'd be curious. I don't know if we have time to go through individuals, but just off the top of my head, I could think of the New Yorker critic James Wood, mm-hmm. who comes from a very strongly conservative background in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. And I think of the atheist, but nonetheless very Jewishly uh, reflective William Dereshevitz, who's another literary critic I admire tremendously. I, I guess you probably have your own your own examples. Well, even just this week, we've read two of the critics we've read are Teju Cole 
who grew up, who's an African writer living in America, grew up part of his, uh, his years in America, but he was closely involved with a church until his adult years, but that still breaks through in his writing a lot. And just today we read John Jeremiah Sullivan's essay about going to creation back in the early aughts, the Christian music festival. And that's what he writes about in there. And there is a link there. I think it's a interesting one. I don't know if there's something about the critical impulse that's tied to the yeah. religious impulse. Well, let's talk about that on another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were at Christianity Today, as we said, mm-hmm. for a while. And that, I mean, I, I can't think, I mean, to me, that feels like the pinnacle film gig for a person of faith in the, in the, in the kind of larger world. So that was obviously a very uh, good place to be with a wide readership and lots of response, good and bad. You didn't read the comm boxes, did you? Or, or maybe you sampled them for for purposes of understanding your audience. I read them under my review of Noah, which Darren Aronofsky's film, which I rather liked. But man, people were angry. But I read them partly for to see like why were people angry, um, which I don't think I was very enlightened by the comments. But and also because some of them were just high comedy. Yes. One person commented on it saying midrash, which I had mentioned in the midrash, more like mid trash. <laughs> wow. There's yeah. a zinger for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I started at CT because uh, at the request of our friend, Andy Crouch, who was an editor there at the time. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's a, you know, it's a great publication. And they had 10 years earlier begun thinking about film with a bigger, much bigger lens on it than you typically find in Christian media. And even then they'd had to that point where we're talking about not just the content of the film, but actually thinking about the form and how it fits into film history and how it's working as a film, which I think is, is what proper criticism actually is. So now you are the film critic for Vox.com and that is a mainstream website is there is there a kind of I mean what does the about page of vox.com say I mean I guess another way of putting it would be does it have a mission statement what's what characterizes vox is it is it a news site I mean how what what is it all about Yeah I mean the mission statement is explain the news basically okay. so the okay. whole concept of the site which is only 3 years old was to help people make sense of what they were reading in the news by hopefully providing a little deeper context than you might receive in like a straight reporting article. So whether that means talking to experts or hiring them, both of those things can be true. So that was a good fit for me because I've always felt like what I do best as a critic is help people figure out what they just watched. Well, and we were were saying for the religious audience, you're trying to explain why something that might be offensive or, you know, inexplicable is worth giving the time of day to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and moving over to Vox, the readership skews kind of under 40, but has a fair number of um, sort of more middle-aged readers. Their major beat is politics and policy, really heavier on the policy side than politics because there's enough politics out there. But the culture department tries to do the same thing, explain kind of what's out there in a way that would make it accessible to someone who's not an expert. So as a film person who isn't an expert in film at all, I've never studied a film studies program or something. It was a good fit for me. 
and for what I do. And so the other part of it that's been really good is there's a lot of religiously related film out there and right now, and I'm able to bring that experience and understanding to bear in ways that, you know, maybe someone who was brought up outside of a religious world wouldn't be able to. Yeah. <clears throat> Increasingly these days, there are kind of hellacious faux pas about, you know, just people who just really don't know anything yeah. about religion. They literally, and they're, you know, anyway, well, we could, we could go off on that tangent. So, you know, you've moved, I think, pretty seamlessly from the one, the one kind of world to the other. I mean, I'm curious, do you, do you ever feel like, I mean, you did come from a conservative background, so it's not completely unheard of for a kind of typical Christian refrain to be, well, if I'm a person of faith and I want to be in the public sphere, I'm going to be prejudiced against, I'm going to, I'm not going to get the job that I would otherwise want. I mean, maybe that's less these days. I don't know. But how do you, how did you navigate those? Or maybe you were just blessed that that was never an issue for you? I thought it was an issue for many years. In my head was the idea, I've always written for Christian media. I'm only going to be acceptable in Christian media. I'm not even going to try to write outside of Christian media. And then I was talking to, well, really what happened was I started just making friends on Twitter, believe it or not, with other critics. And it's a very friendly and welcoming community. And I discovered that they were reading Christianity Today because they were interested in what a Christian perspective on various mainstream films was. And that surprised me that people were reading it not because they were Christians, but because they wanted to see what Christians had to say. And then I started pitching other publications like Rolling Stone and RogerEbert.com and these sort of more mainstream publications and discovered that they were extremely supportive of this and they really wanted those voices out there because most people who don't know much about religion, know they don't know much about religion, and also have a heightened sense that it's really important. But the move to Vox, basically, I, I got an email from someone who said, hey, we're opening this position, would you be interested? And I have never encountered a moment where it was awkward. I, the only awkwardness I've encountered about having worked in Christian media comes from Christians. <laughs> oh, well. Non-Christian people are like, great, that's so cool. But then Christian people always are tied up in knots. And I've had conversations even here where people are like, so, but like, was it hard moving from Christian media? And I, I mean, it's actually been much easier because I get, I get encouraging emails from people. <laughs> I don't have my quest, my salvation questions on a weekly basis. Right. But it also is just, uh, it's a challenge in that I have to always reorient myself towards, okay, if I'm writing about faith in some way, I need to make sure it's accessible to people who maybe don't agree but are curious. Um, so that's been interesting, definitely. But overall, I think there's a big space for religious discourse and religiously tinged writing in the world. And it feels to me like it's much more than it was a decade ago. Right. Well, we certainly have always felt that way. We wanted image to be in the public square and not, you know, we wanted it to be on the same bookshelf next to the New Yorker and the Paris Review. And we felt that if we, if we did our work well, mm -hmm. if we made good things mm -hmm. um, that were honest about the human condition, at least enough so that the religious dimension was seen not necessarily as some kind of extraneous thing, but bound up with the stories and the experiences that, that you know, people would would gravitate to the work and, and at least show it a certain level of respect. And I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, I kind of, I mean, I don't know 
you're still pretty young, but I, I, I don't know if you realize you're probably a role model for a lot of people. And I guess there's some responsibility with that. Yeah, there is, especially with social media be, these days, because it's so easy to, there are, there are multiple things, people I would have called role models for me who I then followed them on Twitter and decided they were not. Not so much. Not so much. And maintaining some kind of authenticity about how you conduct yourself in public spaces is increasingly hard. Well, the temptations to become a guru, to become like a, the high-handed, you know, a hander down of, of, of righteous opinion. I mean, it, it's a trade-off because there will be people who will follow you religiously mm-hmm. because they want that, oh, you are the pure absolute one making these statements. But I don't know, for me, I feel that is fraught with a lot of hubris and danger. And I'm, I'm trying to stumble my way a little more humbly through the minefield of kind of public statement these days. Yeah, it's frightening. And it's also, um, you know, people can sense a phony too. Um, And there's such an emphasis on like branding yourself and like, you know. Hey, but your sales go up. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's the real human temptation at the heart Mm -hmm. of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, I turned off the ability to see likes and retweets on Facebook or on Twitter for myself. So Twitter is just purely there for interacting. Beautiful, beautiful. All of those things. But, you know, I have the advantage. I'm 33. So I'm, I'm a native to a lot of these things. And so it comes more naturally, perhaps, than it does for some other people. Indeed. Well, yes, yeah, certainly for this older than 33 guy, <laughs> I'll say. So um, tell me, I mean, everyone, there's always these discussions. Um, are we living in the great age of television? Are we, is this the death of the novel? What about criticism? I mean, is this, is this a golden age of criticism? Is it a sort of so-so age of criticism? And how do you feel about the state of this, this art that you practice? Yeah, so of course, this is all we talk about, <laughs> critics, um, when we're not arguing with each other about movies. Um, and I tend to agree with, um, so A.O. Scott uh, from the New York Times wrote a book on criticism that came out last year. And in it, he talks about this too, and I think it captures the idea, which is that we are both in a decline and a golden age at the same time, if that's possible when it comes to criticism. There's more of it than there ever has been before. There's more ways to get published, but there are fewer ways to make a living at it. And that I think is okay. Um, I think it's the, the idea that you could make a living writing three reviews a week um, is kind of amazing to me. But what it means is that everyone who aspires to be a critic also needs to learn to do five other kinds of things, whether it's different kinds of writing, like service journalism and profiles and interviews, and maybe you can write about TV and film. That's the way to get hired. Um, or maybe it means you freelance and you teach, and that's a good thing too, uh, because I think teaching is good for writing and writing is good for teaching. So that's it, it's in decline because what we knew as the age of criticism is just dying out, professional criticism, but also professional critics have a lot of ability to get published. I wish the making a living part wasn't so hard, and I'm aware that I'm I'm lucky to have a job, but I also have to write all kinds of things that I normally wouldn't choose to, and I have to write five or six pieces a week. So I think it's a little bit of both, and I like that a lot. I think that um, it helps people realize that everyone can think critically about art, um, and that it actually helps the art. It can create a buzz for a film that nobody would have thought of before, or it can 
help an artist be put in conversation with an artist from another culture or time. Um, that's or an artist from one medium in conversation with another medium. And I love that. And I think there's a lot of that out there that's very exciting. And it's also not quite as beholden to rules anymore. Mm -hmm. But it does mean that, you know, the places for people to make a living at it are dwindling. Right. Well, you make two good points simultaneously. One is that criticism is, as I think you put it before we got started um, on, on um, on the clock here, part of the ecosystem of the arts and an important part. It fits in with... In, in important ways with the, the, the actual creation and making, because there's this constant dialogue back mm-hmm. and forth between the makers and the and their reflectors or critics. And then there's this other larger question about sort of the economy of, of the fit, literal economy of arts life today, mm-hmm. how people make livings and find the material sustenance to participate intelligently in what is in a really important civilizational mm-hmm. um, task that's out there. And certainly at, at a nonprofit like Image, we think about <laughs> that all the time. <laughs> well, you know, Alyssa, we we haven't even scratched the surface of the kind of things we could talk about. We haven't really talked about recent films or your top 10 list or anything, but you have to know we want you back on and we want you back on soon. So for now, I think um, we'll sign off, but with the pledge, we hope that you'll come back and we'll talk about some more. We'll pick a theme, we'll pick you know recent films or anything that you want to talk about. That sounds wonderful. All right, thanks so much, Alyssa. Thank you. You can find Alyssa's reviews on Vox.com and be sure to follow her on Twitter at Alyssa Marie. If you liked this interview, you should check out the Seattle Pacific Low Residency MFA Program's website, spu.edu MFA. The deadline just passed for the winter 2018 residency, but they do look at applicants on a rolling basis. The Image Podcast is produced by Image Journal, a leading literary quarterly exploring the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. Thanks to Luke Farquhar for his editing prowess, Over the Rhine for the music you're humming along to right now, and our guest, Alyssa Wilkinson. We'll see you in another two weeks on the next episode of our show. Mm-hmm.